and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today gives me my great pleasure to introduce uh, Ricardo Gubioli. Really interesting guy, another London Business School MBA who has transitioned from a background in engineering back into renewable energy and then along into agricultural tech and where agricultural tech meets carbon capture and storage, uh, carbon sequestration. So really hot topic at the moment, very niche application of a much larger, larger brief. Uh, We cover a lot of topics from entrepreneurial journey through to corporate finance in in a growing business. A quick look at the, the technology, a quick look at the, at the science, and uh, some overviews into the challenges that are faced in a business such as this. I found the conversation fascinating, and I'm sure you will too. Ricardo, thanks so much for inviting us into your fantastic offices here and for spending some time with us to talk about your absolutely fascinating, fascinating journey. And... Uh, Ultimately, where you are today, which is where carbon capture and storage meets meets ag tech. Wonderful space, and it's great to have the opportunity to talk to you. Great. So, could we start off by just introducing yourself and your, your journey to this point? So, my name is Ricardo Gubioli. Uh, at the moment, I'm the director of corporate finance for a startup called Suzewi. Uh, and we are in the, as you said, carbon capture space. My But my journey in decarbonization and wider sustainable Enterprises started post uh, London Business School mm-hmm. uh, when I finished my MBA in 2007, so 15 years ago. And uh, at the time, I joined a, a private equity investment company. So I was investing in this new thing called renewable energy. Obviously, it wasn't new because it had been around for many years, but the interest was substantial back then, but it's still very much in its infancy. And when I started in 2007, Capital cost was very high. There were a lot of government incentives, feeding tariffs, et cetera, which made it profitable and interesting for investors to go into that sector, but it was still quite high risk and there's a lot of development happened. I then sort of was part of that journey through the financial crisis, post-financial crisis, uh, and I saw really the, the renewable energy industry really changing and becoming from niche on not many people's radars to becoming much more mainstream and if you think about it, for example, in terms of capital, going from the private equity players, which were looking at higher return, higher risk, to a little bit more stable, uh, a lot of more infrastructure players and um, IPOs even. So, you know, quite a, quite a varied uh, set of um, investors in the space. And that was roughly the time I then actually changed and left the renewable energy industry. And I, I started where I am now. Actually, I had a couple of years where I was a consultant. And then after that, I started where I am now. And uh, yeah, now I'm in a company, a company we're just about to rebrand. It's uh, our new name, our new corporate identity of last week uh, will be announced next week. But as of last week, we're officially called Brilliant Planet. So that's where I'm now. Very cool. Very cool. Tell me about, a little bit about how you feel before we move on to your current, um, your, your current, current position and uh, the, the interesting you know, technologies and experimentation you need to do there. How you feel corporate finance fits into the renewable energy sector? So, so like your, your, your previous job. The way I've lived it has been 
when I looked, when I think about corporate finance, I really think about different forms of capital and being your um, equity capital, your debt capital, potentially grants as well. And then within the equity and the debt, also the in-betweens, mezzanine, mm -hmm. structured finance, favorable finance. So, you know, the way I've lived it in particular has been when I started with New Energy, and we're talking quite a while ago, now about 15 years ago, you were allowed relatively high leverage uh, because the incentives were so high and they were government-backed. So there were government incentives uh, and uh, you got quite high, so the, you know, typically feeding tariffs or, or tax, uh, tax advantages in some countries, I particularly with a lot of feed-in tariffs. And it will allow you to really leverage the assets quite high, which is clearly, as an equity investor, was pretty, as it is, as it always has been part of the game, uh, an, an important way to attract capital into that particular segment because you can have quite high returns. But this was about 15 years ago. I think as, as the markets developed, I think the cost of capital within renewable energy has, has decreased. You know, we look at projects now, they're, they're in the single digit sort of returns, unlevered returns. And, um, and I think that's also changed a lot the type of investors which are, which are going in. The banks have remained the same and consistent. Uh, if anything, the banks, I think, have got slightly better in some ways because now they're more open-minded. They used to be really restrictive on, on, on equipment. You have some wind turbines which wouldn't be financed. You have much worse terms. Uh, whereas now it tends to be a little bit more, you know, there's much more background and much more uh, previous data to help with that. What has changed, I think, has been the on the equity side. Uh, in my view, there's been you know, a big move from a higher sort of risk-reward players which might be, as I said, in a private equity that we were in, to companies which are looking at much more stable but lower returns, such as infrastructure investment type returns. So for more traditional pension funds or insurance companies and so on. Now, the different stages are of a project are now quite defined, I think, by the capital structure. So the early stages, development stages, are still potentially you will see a lot of earlier higher risk capital and then once in a construction phase. But after the construction phase, typically it tends to be uh, lower. So I think in answer to your question, Chris, corporate finance has played a role in terms of we have seen the development and becoming mainstream of renewable energy a lot, I think, because of the early investors the industry has matured and developed since gone through a natural life cycle and we're now in a place where renewable energy is rightly seen as infrastructure. It was always infrastructure, but there was perceived technology risks, which you know, some were real, some were not. Um, and technology has certainly improved, particularly on the solar side. So, yeah, it's very, it's very, very much mainstream now. And uh, corporate finance, corporate financiers such as yourself have played a key role in, in moving us, uh, moving us down that path. So, so now let's talk about the, the meat of the interview, your new sector. Uh, could you please tell us about your, your new company, your new technology and um, how you are um, impacting the, the, the climate change uh, initiative for now? So what, what we do as a company, what Brilliant Planet does as a company, we've developed our own technology to grow microalgae. So I always sort of joking tell people, imagine the things you don't want growing in between your bathroom tiles, those green things. That's actually what we're looking at growing. So people typically like algae, don't want them. In fact, they're pretty amazing uh, species. So first of all, they've been around for billions of years and they're very evolved as a species. In themselves is really interesting because obviously they're microscopic, but they have a variety of properties around them, which makes them very useful for many different things. So you can get food out of them, you can get oils out of them. And the other thing is, they're a biomass. So 
they're like growing a tree. You're growing a bio, you're growing algae. It's like you're getting carbon dioxide from the air, and, and you're growing it with photosynthesis, light from the from the sun, uh, and carbon dioxide from the air. You're basically growing algae. So, what my company does is we have a specific technology which allows us to bioprospect relevant algae for different specific end uses. So, for example, you say I might want to uh, have a product which is rich in protein. So we know what type of algae we can grow uh, so we'll have the best protein ratio. Similarly, we might want lipids. So again, similar with lipids. And also we cross-reference it with the amount of carbon they take from the atmosphere, the time it takes them to grow, the energy it takes to grow. So it's obviously a complex matrix, but this is kind of what we do. The other thing we do, and we have patents for, is the process of growing it. So it, it's algae have, have been growing naturally in the ocean for literally millions of years. And it just happened. But when you look at the history of making them grow artificially, it has tradition been fraught with failure. So if you cast your mind back to, well, when I was in the renewable, starting the renewable energy industry around 2005, 2006, 2007, there are a lot of high profile investments for example, one called Sapphire Energy, which were in, in microalgae. And they were really looking at growing microalgae in a very synthetic way uh, and competing when well, oil was at a very high level. Obviously, oil has gone back out recently, but for the last 10 years, it hasn't quite been like that. And, you know, they were able to compete in a high um, oil price scenario as very specific fuels. So they were really using microalgae for biofuels. And the typical customers were... Um, Initially, it was thought to be U.S. aviation, U.S. air forces, so for very specific uses. And the idea was that you could grow the algae independently and therefore mitigate the, uh, any risks to the oil-producing countries. Sounds great. We should, we should go back there. We should, we should get the... You say they're not, not in business anymore. What happened? <laughs> well, what happened, and that's a problem, that's kind of where we came in a little bit, is that they had a very, as I said, synthetic process, very complex process, whereby... They were taking algae from a library and growing it in very artificial, synthetic situations. And that means you had to build around it a massive infrastructure. And a lot of the people which were in, in algae at the time were from the oil and gas industry. So they're used to expensive structures around them. So you had very expensive photobioreactors. You're importing uh, carbon dioxide, pumping it in. You ended up having very high both uh, investment costs and operational costs. And ultimately, if you look at the history, we all know what happened to oil prices about 10 years ago. They went down and they stayed low for a long time. And anyways, the product would have only been competitive if the oil prices kept on going up. But there's, there's generally a technology curve, like people get, get better at doing it. So if this, if this technology exists, these algae exist that can be producing a biofuel, why isn't there more money going into that to, to be reducing all these costs? That's the way things are. You spend more money in R&D, costs come down. That's true. Yeah, I think there were a lot of high-profile um, deaths, let me put it like this, of very important companies. A lot of um, uh, very savvy investors got uh, caught out. And I think that made people, like anything, like any boom and bust, makes people a little bit more wary about them. And we faced that quite a lot as well. So... What we did is, as a company, we looked at our failures and we learned from them. And that's why we then moved to a very natural process. So instead of getting an algae from a library and growing it synthetically in the middle of the desert, we actually grew the algae pretty much where it happens naturally. So we grow algae by the sea with a local species 
and and uh, in natural in a natural environment. So what that means is that the algae naturally is ready to compete with its predators, which could have been many other algae, um, you know, fish, etc. So when they're in a natural environment, you don't need to shelter them to grow them. They naturally exist, survival of the fittest. That's kind of how we've adapted the technology. So you have just gone through a library of existing algae. You haven't, um, you haven't tried to splice or dice or, or whatever. You've just taken and said that. That one has got properties that we like the look of. Um, its natural environment is here. We'll go and build a plant there to try and do it. So you, you built a demonstration plant, I understand. Yeah. That's correct, yeah. So just to clarify, we have our own library. We built our own library. So okay. we, we have 1,200 species in our library. Mm-hmm. Right now, we have a location in Morocco off the coast in Morocco. Uh, It's a beautiful location in the middle of the desert, and it's perfect because obviously it's land with no alternate use, which makes it both not taking away from anything, from food or anything else, and obviously comes with a relatively low cost. But but, but water, where do you get water in the middle of the desert? Well, we we are on the coast, so uh, the way our technology works is we need to be very close to the coast, on the coast, so we're about... Our, our, our land finishes about 10 meters away from the coast. There's a road and then there's the, the coast. So what we do, we build a pipeline into the sea, into the ocean, and pump the water in. At full scale, this becomes a project where effectively moving a lot of water in and out of a, an open system. And then you, so what, you, you build tanks and grow the algae in large tanks of water in the middle of the desert. That's... Okay. In, in a basic format, that's correct, yeah. yes. So the the actual process itself, there's three phases to the process. Mm-hmm. And we have a batch process, and every batch takes about 30 days mm-hmm. from start to end. So in 30 days, we, we have a new batch coming online, and we then we harvest it and, and, uh, and we have our final production. But we start in the lab. So think about we have a multiplication system. So we start with 10 mil of water. We're now down to 10 mil, so we have 20. The day after, you have 20 and another 20, you have 40 and so on. So it's an exponential growth system. Uh, the algae are obviously multiplying during the daytime within the system. So we start with a lab with small amounts. And then after about 10 days, we move to the greenhouse area. So we have, we're still relatively small, but we're now talking about 800 square meters within a greenhouse. Then that takes another 10 days. We ha- and we have several of these so-called raceway ponds. So they're kind of elongated pools, you know, in a way. And then we move to the outside area where we have the proper large-scale raceway ponds. And again, these are increasing in size every time they double. Our maximum size at the moment is 8,000 square meters. But when we'll be at the scale, we'll, we'll be uh, 12,000 square meters. And you just imagine each one is 12,000 square meters. It's about a meter in depth, give or take. And then we have literally hundreds of these adjacent. So we have a so-called modular system where we grow the algae including what I just said, the, the lab, the greenhouse, and the outside ponds. And this is like a, a module, and then you can sort of bolt on uh, different different modules to have a full-size growth and production system. Now, for us, this is still in the future. At the moment, as you said, I, we have an operational plant. It's an operational pilot plant, and this has been really a prototype to allow us to explore and demonstrate the technology, demonstrate we can grow the algae, understand all the issues that come with it, because even though it's a simple natural process, there's still obviously our number of issues we need to explore. We are in the R&D phase. And so you're growing this, uh, you've chosen this particular type of algae for uh, for particular properties. Uh, what properties are you encouraging? Why what, what, why, why choose this one? That's not a biofuel, but what, what, what does it do? 
Well, in, as I say, we have a, a large library, and within this library, we can select algae for different end uses. So we've been in the in, the, in this game as a company has been around for about eight years, um, and we've evolved within this. So initially, as a company, we started looking at the um, fish meal substitute. So as part of the aquaculture industry, uh, sort of obviously the food going for the uh, for the salmon in our case in particular. And now we've evolved that thinking a little bit more towards um, other higher value food products and carbon removal. So we have two key markets which we're looking at at the moment. The the most important one for us, and obviously I think for our conversation, is uh, carbon, so carbon removal. So we're looking at being an active participant towards supplying carbon credits in the voluntary carbon markets, okay. so high quality credits, so which are can be traced from, uh, from start to finish, both in quantity, location, and certification. Historically, over the last few years, there has been some things of question about where these genuine projects would, would have happened anyways, yeah. or are there additional projects? And you know, we're really focusing on demonstrating that part. So we're specifically for new projects to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And do you want to talk a little bit more about uh, carbon markets and how they work? Because, you know, it's a fascinating, fascinating world and it'll be increasingly important if we're trying to get to get to net zero. Carbon markets have, have been around for many years, obviously. Uh, there have been a number of, I would say, false starts in carbon markets. So, you know, when I started looking at voluntary carbon markets, prices were about $50 a ton and a year after they were zero and pretty much stayed zero. Uh, then, obviously, there's all the... Um, non-voluntary carbon markets like the EU ETS scheme, which have been traditionally, you know, carbon markets are a contentious point, I think, for, for many people. And a lot of people will debate whether we should have a carbon tax, and I'm not going to get into that. But the markets which were mandated by, for example, in Europe, uh, which gave specific targets, but then they input a lot of carbon credits, and therefore meant the prices were zero. So it, they didn't really take off as as expectations. Yeah. Well, that ha- has changed a bit recently. Though. Well, so that's that's historically, I think if you cast the right to last three or four years, I would say that instead has been really picking up. Well, A, because it changed the structure. So there's actually many less carbon uh, credits going into those markets. And the other thing which we're seeing, and it's really where we are acting, as I said, is the voluntary carbon market. So a lot of companies, big companies, are keen really to show that they are working towards decarbonizing, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Now, obviously you would say stop producing and you don't produce anything, but that would be counterproductive clearly. So I think it's really interesting because companies are looking at ways they can do that. I think it's a multi-pronged strategy. So on the one hand, clearly they're being more conscious about the energy they use, reducing use of energy. But at the same time, there's going to be a base load effectively, which they're not able to, to cut. So then what can they do to then offset their their carbon usage? And that's where people like us would come in, the voluntary carbon credits. Everyone likes to use the example of Microsoft and Google and these big uh, corporate sort of uh, technology firms, which are really actively looking at how they can uh, reduce them. Those are the kind of markets which we'll be looking at to start off with, because these companies understand, and you know, a lot of companies are going to try and reach their goals for 2030. But interestingly, a lot of them, uh, corporate consulting companies, for example, uh, are, are quite active in these markets as well. They're really looking at ways of reducing the carbon footprint. And an important aspect has been 
the this distinction of the high quality credits, you know, what is a genuine credit that really is carbon dioxide, generally traceable, removed. You can trace it and you can see it's been removed and you can go identify where it's buried as opposed to other, sometimes there are projects which are a little bit less clear exactly of how, you know, how that carbon was removed. I think there's going to be a, I would say, a flight to quality in terms of uh, carbon credits. Uh, and the corporates are going to be looking for, you know, high quality credits. And that's where we are aiming to be. And that's where we expect to be. One of the trickiest uh, problems now is uh, certification. There's there's lots of people who are out there trying to certify, and there's a mixture of quality quality amongst them. I'd imagine that there'll be you know two or three you know champions, winners, winners ultimately in the game. But how do you go about uh, your how you're thinking about your your own certification process? Have you started to be putting yourself through the accreditation process with these guys? To be very honest with you, we're just starting that. So at the moment, we're still at the stage where we're evaluating the different companies which provide the service. Um, there, as I said, there's, there's a number of companies which provide it, but I think there's a few, I'll say three key players which we'll be looking at. Now, on the one hand, uh, have the, the conversations and the, the agreements with these companies to come and certify. And this is what our clients already are requesting. So we're aware of this. On the other hand, when you look at our production system, even though it's a na- nature based, relatively simple procedure, we're actually very tech savvy, very tech conscious. So in the production system, from the design phase, which we're now on a large scale, we're really looking at integrating sensors and measurements and, and having you know, a very clear idea of the volume. And from the volume, we can then figure out the, the mass in the different stages of, of our production and making sure that we quantify and qualify all our productions. And what's your, your special sauce? Because if, if, you if you're taking particular types of bugs and putting them into um, essentially seawater, salt water, um, what's to stop someone else just going and going, oh, that's a good idea, we'll do that. Well, they're welcome <laughs> to join the party. I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, we've been doing this for eight years. And even though, again, it's simple, it's still obviously like any, any um, research and development activity might look simple when it's done. But uh, there's a lot that goes behind it. So, you know, the, just the, the bioprospecting, the understanding of growth. So we do a lot of analysis of, of the growth cycle and to understand what is actually um, motivating the algae, the, the, the diatoms, the atoms to grow, what impact light has on them, what impact heat has on them. This is all a scientific process, which obviously takes a fair amount of observation yeah. and analysis before we get it. We're, we're constantly evolving. And you have a lab around the corner from here in Camden. Yes. Um, what are the differences you've noticed from the lab environment in Camden to a desert environment? <laughs> you know, uh, okay, so mind you, I'm not a scientist, so I'm mostly to do with the finance aspects. But um, and you know, I think I would do a disservice to my colleagues on the science side. And as a company, we have. We're 15 now, and we have about 10 people in, in the science side, and then five people, including myself, on the business side. So they would be able to give a much better response. But um, when we're outside, the, the biggest difference is predators. So when you're in a lab, you don't have predators. So you're growing things in a, in a safe, closed environment. When you're outside, you have predators. And it could be, as I said, there could be fish, there could be other algae, there could be other species in the water, there could be uh, birds, it could be... A bird, both in terms of birds getting the algae, but also, uh, you know, defecating in the algae. And, you know, the key thing for us has been when we are in the lab, we have a protected environment. That's why I'm going to take you back to our three stage production process. 
think about the LJS children. When they're young and small, you keep them nice and safe in a nice, safe environment, typically, and try to grow them and teach them how to behave. And that's what we do in the lab. Then we're a little bit larger. We put them in university, which is the greenhouses. So they're already finding their own feet. And then we put them out in the big, bad world, which are the outside palms. And by that time, they can fend for themselves. But that's a simple way from a business perspective of explaining the, the impact on that. So Morocco must have been a really interesting place, place to set up. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the, you know, the, the cooperation from, that you have from local governments and also the, the various challenges you're bound to, bound to have come across? Yeah. So yeah, Morocco has been a, is a great place, uh, to be. Um, we actually started a partnership with the Moroccan government as part of COP22. Okay. So in COP22, the, and by that time we already had a relationship with the Moroccan government, but, uh, the Moroccan government basically saw our algae, our project as part of their uh, commitment towards reducing greenhouse gas emissions. As you might probably know, Morocco has also heavily invested in wind energy and also a large extent to solar energy. But for example, adjacent to our land and of interest to you and me, given my background, there's a lot of very high capacity, large scale, you know, 300 megawatt, 450 megawatt uh, wind production sites. But Specifically to us, as I said, we started, our relationship started with COP22 and we were part of the solution that the government saw. And as part of that, we had a very strong support from the Moroccan government at the highest levels. We had, in the company, we have a, a very high ranking um, uh, person in part of our local company, which has obviously helped us a lot in developing the relationships and uh, being part of understanding the local nuances, which I think is very important always to have a local partners which really understand and are able to help you navigate all the differences. I mean, Morocco, for example, is a very bureaucratic country. That You have a lot of bureaucracy about doing a lot of things, but the important thing is being them, doing them the right way and being aware of them, and then you can obviously navigate that. And, but if you come there, like in any business, with expectation from London, you'll be surprised at what you find on site. And that's, that goes, I think, for any development business, really, in natural resources. But as I said, we've had a lot of support from a lot of government agencies in Morocco. Uh, 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 for example, the aquaculture agency, which even though aquaculture typically is linked with groves of fish, uh, in our case, actually means because we're dealing with water, because we're bringing water, so we still fall within the aquaculture section. Uh, and also other government agencies, local, all, all the way down to the local legislation. Mm -hmm. Any advice that you could give to other people who are thinking of you know, stepping out into the entrepreneurial venture and the, you know, this, this type of, you know, deep, deep lab science technology type, uh, type of industry? Well, I think first of all, I would say do it. <laughs> I think uh, for me, it's, uh, you know, one thing I see coming from a sort of corporate sort of finance background, investor background, I think there's a lot of capital, especially these days, looking for good projects. And in reality, you know, when I was sitting on the investor side, that's one of the challenges is because we had the capital, but finding the right project is always a, a difficult uh, aspect. As an entrepreneur, if you're going to be developing such a project, I think then what you need to do is to be able to, to show that yours is, is a good project. So obviously, there's the initial bits that go without saying, which are probably the hardest one is do you have the right technology? Are you delivering the right thing? But I think to me, and what has worked for us, we are proposing a large-scale solution to climate change. What people, what investors in particular, like about us is the potential for scale. 
What we do is great, but if we do it at a small scale, it'll be just an interesting project. And you might get one ultra high net worth individual backing you, but that's going to be the end of that. So I think for me, the main thing would be if an entrepreneur looking at it is really think about your scalability in a problem you're addressing and making sure that it is a scalable problem. And it applies with, with pretty much, you know, the same applies with a, uh, a SaaS uh, investment in, in, in software, you know, what is the scalability of it? So it's a similar thing. And one interesting thing I've noticed in recent times is a lot of the traditional uh, venture capitalists and early stage tech investors are now growing and putting together and opening and starting new climate tech funds. And, you know, that's very much where we are. And that's, in fact, we've recently had investment exactly on the back of that. And I think a lot of in, in traditional investors are now much more open to climate tech as part of the solution towards climate crisis. So there's a lot of capital moving and chasing for this. But again, they'll be looking at the things which are, what, what is the problem is solving? Is it a scalable solution? And then obviously all the other things which in a typical VC investment will go like, is this the right team? Are they in the right place? And, and then have they done the right things to date? So the conversation so far has been very much on carbon capture and storage. But the other part of what you were talking about was, was will you grow this particular algae for a particular reason? Correct. Yeah. And, and has particular chemical properties. Um, our conversation has been very much about the carbon capture and storage rather than the chemical properties. So interestingly, when the company was started, it was started on the back of a patent. And the patent is called method of carbon sequestration. Oh, wow. So interesting enough, uh, a little backstory. Our, our chief scientist, uh, Dr. Jovin, who's come up with the technology, he initially started developing the technology in response to the, um, there's a virgin challenge, uh, many years ago now, about 10 years ago, which was, can you come up with a method of removing, I think it was a hundred thousand tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Yeah. And that was the challenge. Yeah, that was Richard Branson. Yeah? Richard Branson's yeah, yeah, challenge, yeah, yeah. correct. So in effect, no one won, but that's what started, you know, our company. And that's the first patents that was put down. That was registered for was method of carbon sequestration. Now it's been an interesting journey because as a startup, obviously you, you pivot and change and you, you adapt and you survive. And at one point we moved more towards, as you say, the properties of that. So algae without boring you, but algae is a super interesting, um, as, as a system because it allows for growing many different things. So you can grow food from algae, you can remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Uh, you can use it for many different things. You can use it for cement, you can use it for egg white substitute, for example, in industrial processes. You can really do a lot of stuff with it. So the chemical properties of the algae are obviously key important. But then one of the challenges we faced is, sure, we can do a lot of different things with the same basic algae. Now we have different strains which will grow with different properties. But we can actually do many things. Do I use type 1 and type 2 or type 3? Each one will give me a slightly different product. Which one do I pick? But the question is really what market do I want to be in, obviously. So you need to think about your end market. Now, for us, as I mentioned, we are in the carbon market. But we are also in the secondary market, which is actually, in a way, a more interesting market. And we are in the uh, sustainable foods market. In particular, we're looking at beta-carotene. So beta-carotene is, is an ingredient that goes in, into many foods. It's a kind of colorant in the industrial process. And we look at how it's produced now, it's produced again in a synthetic, synthetic way, mostly. So like many other ingredients in our food, companies which produce it are looking at 
having more sustainable ways of producing it. A, because from a sort of sustainability perspective, CO2 reduction. B, from a um, resourcing perspective, so they want to have you know multiple uh, choices when they're we're looking at by sourcing it. And and C, when they look at the properties of, of what is in it, obviously a natural solution typically is slightly better than a non-natural solution. So, you know, one of the other markets we're developing and which we can develop is, as I said, uh, beta-carotene. Why use beta-carotene when you can be replacing motor fuel? <laughs> <laughs> well, so one thing to realize, obviously, petrol prices right now are in a bit of a flux as we speak, but um, for the past number of years, They've been relatively somewhat stable, even though obviously stably increasing slowly. So there's a couple of key things there. A, we're growing something, so we'd rather try not to burn it because <laughs> yeah. you know, it goes against our kind of sustainability credentials. So that's one big part. Uh, and the other part is, you know, we can use that as food. And within the food markets, we didn't get in, without getting into the specifics of, of dollars or, or, or pricing, but some food markets, for example, beta-carotene are actually very um, lucrative. So for us, it's a very small percentage where we can produce is goes into that market. But within that sliver, and it's not a big market, but it's still a very profitable market. So we decided to focus our product on that because we're a startup. We have startup costs. We have development costs. We've been spending years in R&D. So we need somehow to cover this. We can't compete with a commoditized product. So, for example, when we looked at, a, um, for instance, uh, fish meal replacement, uh, we'll be substituting mostly for something like soybean. I mean, soybean is a commoditized product. It trades a very established, I mean, there's different markets within soy, but you know, at the end of the day, they're within a relatively small margin of each other. And we couldn't really compete with those. We don't, you know, we have startup costs, we have new technology. Soy has been around for uh, many, many years, so we couldn't really compete. So we had to focus on the markets which would allow us to develop the technology. It doesn't mean that in the future we don't do that, but right now, as we approach the market, that's the first markets we're going to go into. So you've already been operating for, what you said, eight years? As a company, we've been for eight years. Eight yeah. years, wow. So I think the way we look at it now, we believe we're going to be into full-scale, large-scale production about five years from now. So we've now just closed a Series A fundraise. This fundraise will take us to about 12, 18 months runway upon which we'll do a Series B fundraise. The Series B fundraise will deliver a full-size commercial-scale pilot plant. So we've, we have the small-scale pilot plant already operational. We're going to do a full-size commercial-scale pilot plant. And then we'll have a so-called Series C. It won't be a Series C as such, but if you think about it as a Series C, to then build a full-size commercial-scale facility. How we size that would also depend a little bit on how we structure the capital. But at the moment, we're looking at having about probably about 150 million project, dollar, dollar project. As I mentioned earlier, we have a modular sort of system. So when you think about the Series B, it's going to deliver the first module. We then take this module and multiply it five, ten times for the Series C. And that's how, how we look at scaling it. So as we go along, we're trying to de-risk every step of the way, and that's clearly what investors need, and, and any investor loves to have a de-risk project, clearly. So what, we, what we're trying to do is, right now, we're de-risking a number of elements, uh, I guess, with the company, with the product. Next step will be to de-risk the production at full scale, 
So shows that we can do this consistently at, at a large scale. And by that point, they will be able to then move to the full scale production when we hopefully will have, you know, at least surprises as we go along. Again, keep in mind, it's new technology. It's, I want to say it's experimental because all the things we use are known and there's nothing implicitly so new about it, but it's still putting it all together in a new shape or form is always clearly, you know, there's always newness to that and you come across hundreds of different things which might, you know, you don't have foreseen. Typical, like the same with any sort of, I guess, even infrastructure project you think about it. And I think we think about it, when I think about it, in the long term, so, you know, as I said, it'll be about five years before we start having full-scale commercial production. But if you look at it in the long term, it really, I really think that we're going to become, again, like an infrastructure type investment in terms of the risk and in terms of the, the kind of capital. So it came very similar to the story which I came from, which is we go to, we start from uh, right now, we're in a venture capital money. So obviously high risk, but and high return sort of money. And as we, as we go along that journey, the, the capital and the capital providers I'm forecasting will be changing from what are now at the moment are venture capital or grants, government backing, that kind of stuff to commercial, uh, equity, commercial debt and long-term infrastructures type debt. So, you know, from guest pension funds and so on. And these are relatively long-term projects as well. The continual hamster wheel of running around fundraising, which is you know, typical with big infrastructure projects and big technology projects. Well, there's a, as you say, um, some people sometimes say, um, fundraising is not a business model. So, <laughs> but uh, at the moment it is for us, a fun, you know, that is a, not necessarily the business model because we have a clear idea of what markets or what project and how we're going to do it. But at the moment, we still have to go through that, through those hoops as, as you know, as any project. Yeah. So you, you're sitting here, um, eight years in with another five years to go. Um, I wonder what the founders, you know, thought. Would they, did they think it was going to be a 10 year uh, program? And you sitting here kind of mid cycle in your own career with, with the company before you're on full production still 10 years of your life like how do you how do you kind of psychologically prepare for that how do you how do you prepare for that in terms of the you know, the finances of the business i think you've already covered but really more kind of psychologically how do you think i'm going to be be involved in this for the next 10 years so in terms of how do we how do we prepare for what is a long-term journey as an entrepreneurial company i think that's you know that has several challenges i think a little bit depends on what kind of person you are and what you're ready to take on as a from even from a career perspective, from a personal perspective. You know, obviously you're in a company which uh you're always looking at twelve months cash burn kind of thing, and that's kind of my job. I look at, you know, how much cash do we have, when are we gonna run out, when do we need more, what what are the levers to pull? So on the one hand, very, very conscious of that because it's my day to day. Um and at the same time, I think A, you have to have a bit of faith in terms of you're going to go, be able to go to the next stage. How do you go to the next stage? Is you have to be very clear on being efficient with your runway and being sure that the money you're using is, you know, is actually going to give you a, a proper result. The money you're using that's going to be able to deliver the results you need in order to go to the next stage. Um, the other thing is, obviously, when you're in a startup, clearly you're getting maybe smaller compensation, but then you also compensate it with shares and part of the ownership. And I think that's also, again, goes down to the kind of person you are, whether you're willing to take that risk 
and whether you are, you know, that is the kind of things that works for you. So you're really betting your own career on the future of the company. And at the end of the day, you know, I think if you're going to a large company and someone like NG, for example, which is a great company, very established, very, very stable, perhaps, and you know you're going to go into a certain type of company, have a certain type of role. If you're in a startup, you're having many more roles and you can really help shape it. So I think it's a little bit, you know, a personal choice and it kind of comes with the territory. So I would, I would almost argue that you should already know that, you know, you should set yourself up mentally for this might not work out, but I'm trying it and it's going to keep on going at it. And I'm going to keep on being tenacious about it and scrappy about it. And it comes a point when you can be less scrappy, be less than it was always tenacious, but less scrappy and be a bit more professional. And that's kind of stage we are at as a company now. We're kind of moving from that scrappy early stage to a little bit more corporate, a little bit more structured, a little bit more poised for growth, really thinking about what's actually going to make us deliver uh, our next goal. So, you know, from scrappy company, no systems, now we're putting a system in place, policies in place, implementing a clear structure, getting proper advisors in place, really structuring the company because then you can grow to the, you know, it's going to be more and more important as we get more capital into the company to have a company which can accommodate that capital and which will effectively, when you get investors, they'll get their reassurance that the company's properly run. I think that's a big, you know, a big important step in our growth. And just on that point, do you, do you see that the world has changed recently? Well, I think the, obviously there's a lot of geopolitics at play at the moment. There's, there's a few things there. One is, I don't think that the climate change problem is going to go away. And for my part, I'm still looking, you know, I'm still part of that solution. So that's not going to go away. What, it might get worse, perhaps, you know, as companies and, and governments trying to refocus their energy matrix. What does that mean? Are they going to move to more oil, more gas? We're going to move to more nuclear, for example. You know, small nuclear, for example, could be a solution, right? I mean, there's several solutions that are on the table, which at the moment it's hard to say as, as an energy matrix and what the geopolitics of those are going to have. But even if you look at, for example, you know, um, electric vehicles and batteries and storage, those have got their own underlying geopolitics. So countries like, uh, I don't know, Congo, Australia, Chile come more into the mix. So we might be changing dynamics in countries, but those underlying problems will, will just be shifting from one country to another. And the solution will be fluid, I guess, but it will still be a solution that needs to be managed. Yeah, but talking to you as the um, corporate financier, and you say you're not an economist, but you do have a MBA from London Business School, so interest rates are on an upward trend, inflation's on an upward trend. Um, how do you then deal with the increased cost of capital as a, as, as a corporate finance guy? Well, so these are obviously all, all risks which we need to be aware of. Um, I think they're, they're developing. We've been kind of uh, had the luxury of the last 15 to 20 years to have a low interest world. Um, those predictions have been always that they'll be going up and now we've finally seen that. I think it's going to obviously have an impact on uh, on the equity side, clearly to my mind, as you know, we we'll think of a corporate finance structure, typical equity versus debt. The debt's going to become more expensive and it's going to eat in into um, what I would say a low, low return uh, equity projects. So, you know, it will have repercussions for, across across the chain. So I think uh, it's going to be a question of how do we adapt and how do investors deploy their capital and where do they deploy it? And yeah, yeah, it is the trillion dollar question, yes. you know, in this, in this, this new world. 
So, Ricardo, I think if we're finally going to be um, wrapping up this conversation, it's been fantastic. Thank you. Um, could we kind of focus in on kind of one last point? There's a lot of work going into this, into the whole the whole climate change area. And there's dozens and dozens of micro aspects where people can be getting involved in, in this, this part of that bit if you're passionate about climate change. Um, why should someone who is, like, say, like in London Business School studying or someone who's, who, who's sitting at home with some money in their pocket wondering where, where they should be investing or someone who's, who's just thinking about it, making a career change, why should they be considering, you know, going into the space that, that you are, which is taking in your corporate finance skills and your like the skills that you had but moving into this very very interesting but you know niche market well i think there is obviously there's a wider sort of ethical question and clearly there's many discussions around climate change and there's the believers the non-believers i would say i myself was within the believers side clearly as demonstrated by my career what i've been focusing on delivering what i believe in and you know once you take that as a given to my mind, personally, it's a responsibility towards future generations. That's why I do it conceptually. I do believe a lot in legacy. So to me, that would be my legacy. So that's why I decided to spend my time doing this rather than something else. So obviously, that's a personal thing. I think a lot of people could probably relate to that. I think if you then think about it a little bit more, maybe pragmatically, there's a lot of funding searching not many projects, many quality projects. So, you know, I think... I'm not saying that if you start a company like this, you would necessarily hit gold straight away. It's not an easy journey. It's pretty tough. We've been through the hard bits as well as the good bits. Um, but I think what I would say is that to the community is try and be part of a solution. And to me, this is being part of a solution. We are one of many solutions to climate change. We are removing carbon from the atmosphere. Before I was generating energy from clean sources. And there's many other ways in, be- in between, hundreds of different businesses in climate tech, climate venture, um, blockchain for uh, for renewable energy, uh, y- you name it. I mean, the, the electric vehicles, storage, green, hydrogen, you know, there's so many different solutions. I think each one of these, in my opinion, presents what are really relevant businesses for today, which solve a genuine problem and which are a genuine, relevant problem we're solving. Well, Ricardo, that was a great note to end on. Thoroughly enjoyed the, the conversation. It was fascinating. Really enjoyed it. Well, thank you for having me, Chris. Thank it's you. a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.